Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. Today we'll move on to the first phenomena exercise, the contemplation of the hindrances. Recall that one of the toolbox factors of the Satipatthana is described in the phrase having put away covetousness and grief for the world. This describes non-distractedness, putting and keeping irrelevant worldly matters out of mind in order to focus ardently on each of the Satipatthana exercises in turn. Here is how contemplation of hindrances is described. And how, bhikkhus, does a bhikkhu abide contemplating phenomena in phenomena? Here, a bhikkhu abides contemplating phenomena in phenomena in terms of the five hindrances. And how does a bhikkhu abide contemplating phenomena in phenomena in terms of the five hindrances? Here, there being sensual desire in him, a bhikkhu understands, there is sensual desire in me, or there being no sensual desire in him, he understands, there is no sensual desire in me, and he understands how there comes to be the arising of unarisen sensual desire, and how there comes to be the abandoning of arisen sensual desire, and how there comes to be the future non-arising of abandoned sensual desire. There being ill will in him, dot, 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 it's the same thing. There being sloth torpor in him, it's the same thing. There being restlessness remorse in him, it's the same thing. There being doubt in him, a bhikkhu understands. There is doubt in me, or there being no doubt in him, he understands. There is no doubt in me, and he understands how there comes to be the arising of unarisen doubt, and how there comes to be the abandoning of arisen doubt, and how there comes to be the future non-arising of abandoned doubt. The current exercise seems to run through the list of hindrances determining whether each is present or not and recognizing its conditions, that is, under what conditions it arises or vanishes. Reviewing the list this way might be useful prior to beginning a Satipatthana exercise. Alternatively, an individual hindrance might arise and intrude into an ongoing Satipatthana exercise, in which case we might want, at least temporarily, to shift from that task 
to contemplation of the intruding hindrance before returning to that task. A third alternative is to recall a past or typical instance of the arising of one of these hindrances, for instance, an arising of sexual arousal or anger the previous day, and contemplate its conditionality and what it might take to control such a hindrance in the meditative environment. In each of the Satipatthana exercises, we are interested in simple observation and understanding of some aspect of experience, not manipulation and control. I think this is what puts non-judgmental into some modern definitions of mindfulness. Although we do discriminate wholesome factors from unwholesome factors, or which factors contribute or detract from productive practice, hindrances are unwholesome and their absence is wholesome, for instance. Putting this discrimination to use is part of right effort, not the role of individual satipatthana exercises themselves. On the other hand, satipatthana depends on right effort and keeping the hindrances at bay for its own success. What we discover in investigating the hindrances can therefore be put to use judgmentally in all of the satipatthana exercises. So, we have sensual desire or lust and ill will, which are immediate forms of greed and hatred. We have sloth torpor and restlessness remorse, each of which is a compound of two related states that tend to color whatever else is going on in the mind. And finally, we have doubt, lack of confidence, in what we are doing. We fail to meditate effectively, like sitting and following the breath, if we are distracted by lust for the sexy person sitting next to us in the meditation hall or by anger at the insurance company that will not pay our medical bills. We fail if we are just plain drowsy or just plain restless. We fail if we have come to the conclusion that this meditation thing is a total waste of time and hang gliding would be a much more worthy pursuit. Notice the prevalence of unwholesome factors among the hindrances. We are not distracted by being overwhelmed by kindness or by being too darn contented. For each hindrance, we can ask if it is present or not and inquire under what circumstances it appears or disappears. We might feel lust for food because someone in the kitchen has started frying onions or because we encounter someone dressed in an alluring fashion. We might feel restless because someone is talking outside the meditation hall or because our inner voice will not shut up. Although we try to control external conditions in the meditation hall, segregate genders, dim the lights, and put up a sign that says, Quiet! Meditation in progress! We are more concerned with the conditions that give rise to the hindrances that we can control subjectively. 
For most of the hindrances, attention is the main controlling factor. If we fail to attend, the hindrance will not arise. If we withdraw attention, it will disappear. In fact, once a hindrance arises, we tend to feed it by actively dwelling on it and attending to the particular qualities of its object that are most evocative of the hindrance. For instance, in sexual lust, we not only notice a man or a woman, but continue to give him or her sustained attention, particularly to those features that repackage these layers of oozing bodily elements as an angel or a goddess or into a hunk or a dreamboat or whatever the current terminology is. One way of gaining insight into the conditions that give rise to the hindrances, at least intellectually, is to look at the techniques the marketing propaganda industry uses to induce the hindrances in us. For this industry deliberately tries to promote each for its own purposes, even while Buddhist practitioners try to reduce their hold on our lives. First, they gain our attention. Then they repackage what it is they are selling. They evoke lust, direct anger, induce torpor and restlessness, and instill doubts in many clever ways. We do roughly the same things to ourselves, but they are masters at it. The Buddha gives us a simile for the hindrances. Suppose, Suppose Brahman, there is a bowl of water mixed with lac, turmeric, blue dye, or crimson dye. If a man with good eyesight were to examine his own facial reflection in it, he would neither know nor see it as it really is. So too Brahman, when one dwells with a mind obsessed by sensual lust, on that occasion, even those hymns that have been recited over a long period do not recur to the mind, let alone those that have not been recited. The first hindrance is compared to obscuring one's reflection in water through adding beautiful colors. This is what the mind does. It is described as a hindrance to memory of scripture here, which is also the root of right mindfulness. The other hindrances are handled in similar terms. Suppose, Brahman, there is a bowl of water being heated over a fire, bubbling and boiling. This is when one dwells with a mind obsessed by ill will. Suppose, Brahman, there is a bowl of water covered over with water, plants, and algae. This is when one dwells with a mind obsessed by sloth and torpor. Suppose, Brahman, there is a bowl of water stirred by the wind rippling, swirling, churned into wavelets. This is when one dwells with a mind obsessed by restlessness, remorse. Suppose, Brahman, there is a bowl of water that is turbid, unsettled, muddy, placed in the dark. 
This is A Mind Obsessed by Doubt. Let's move on to the refrain for each of the phenomena exercises. In this way, he abides contemplating phenomena in phenomena internally, or he abides contemplating phenomena in phenomena externally, or he abides contemplating phenomena in phenomena both internally and externally. This begins the internal analysis of the hindrances. In the uh, Parayaya Sutta method of exposition discourse, some of the disciples of the Buddha discover that teachers of other non-Buddhist sects also teach the hindrances and are hard put to explain what is so special about the Blessed One's teachings on the matter. So they ask the Buddha directly. The Buddha points out that what is unique in his teaching is that each of the hindrances is recognized as a dichotomy. The sutta makes the same claim also with regard to the seven factors of awakening to be discussed in a couple of weeks. The Buddha describes this dichotomy for each of lust, ill will, and doubt as one of, get this, internal versus external. However, sloth, torpor, and restlessness, remorse are handled differently since each is already a dichotomy of two compounded terms. The three hindrances classified as both internal and external do not generally come with a presumption of substantial existence of something. After all, they come and go and are closely aligned with mind. Instead, they have an imperative quality that gives them a substantial role in our narratives about our interactions with the world out there. She made me mad. She had no right to do that. I'm forced to seek retribution. The imperative is both coming and going because of external conditions. I'm forced to experience the hindrance. And because I experience the hindrance, I am forced to act in a certain way. These hindrances come with presumptions that give them a bloated degree of importance. Contemplation of these hindrances tends to dispel these presumptions. Let's continue the refrain. Or else he abides contemplating in phenomena their nature of arising, or he abides contemplating in phenomena their nature of vanishing, or he abides contemplating in phenomena their nature of both arising and vanishing. There is less challenge in recognizing that a hindrance is an impermanent and insubstantial experience than in realizing that your body or your car are impermanent, insubstantial experiences. But the logic of internal analysis is the same. We saw that previous exercises tend to deconstruct internally the otherwise presumed external object so that it fades into more of an abstraction difficult to experience directly or to find. 
It turns out that this also occurs with lust, ill will, and doubt. Internal analysis can make a hindrance, along with its presumed imperative, fade. For instance, we discover that the internal evidence for anger is partly mental and partly physical, but in each case, passing phenomena. A kind of energy in the mind, tightness in the chest, neck, and shoulders, flushing of the face, and so on. We realize that anger is no more than a label we attach to the set of co-occurring ephemeral factors. With that, the imperative quality formally attached to anger disappears, at least for the time being. We see the anger in the anger, certainly no longer in the circumstances out there that caused our anger or our plans for retribution. Anger and most other emotions deconstruct quite readily when subject to internal analysis, at least temporarily. They empty themselves of presumptions and reveal themselves as insubstantial. Internal analysis itself turns out to be actually quite effective in stilling the hindrances and allowing us to become concentrated as a hindrance, say anger, arises to disrupt a body contemplation, for instance, we simply shift momentarily to contemplation of that anger as a matter of satipatthana practice. However, as soon as we hit its internal analysis, it fades. We can't find it. Although this result is properly part of right effort, we get the result from simple contemplation for free. The anger fades away simply through contemplating it. This is really cool because it gives us probably the most effective tool for controlling the anger. We looked a couple of weeks ago at the Buddha's simile for self-examination of looking into a mirror to look for blemishes. Well, internal analysis of a hindrance is as if a woman were merely to look into a mirror or into a pool of water and observe her warts and wrinkles and that scar left over from that mishap with her curling iron, and these flaws would simply disappear, at least temporarily, hopefully long enough to get through that critical first date. What's more, observing her more appealing assets, her big bright eyes and her captivating smile, will not make them disappear. They are not hindrances. The refrain continues, or else mindfulness that there are phenomena is simply established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness, and he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how a bhikkhu abides contemplating phenomena in phenomena in terms of the five hindrances. Anger or any other hindrance is merely a label we put on an assemblage of insubstantial factors, but we keep the label around anyway so that we can teach and learn the hindrances. But the hindrances regarded this way 
lose their control over us. Unfortunately, at least as far as I've been able to determine, the remaining two hindrances, sloth, torpor, and restlessness, regret, fit poorly into the method of internal analysis. The first two such factors that we've encountered in the Satipatthana Sutta. The problem is that they do not seem to have the imperative quality of the other three hindrances, nor the external presumptions that the other three carry. Rather, they seem to color and encourage the other hindrances. Perhaps future semantic analysis of sloth, torpor, restlessness, and regret, tinha, midda, uddacha, and kukkacha in Pali, will change my mind. But I note that these are the hindrances that the Buddha did not identify as exhibiting the internal-external dichotomy. They are almost strictly internal. Next week, we will take up the aggregates of appropriation, which add considerable detail to internal analysis.